We'll get into the whole section of um, that we've been that we started studying last week, but I want to first start at the the opening sentences of this next section and just sit there for a moment. The opening of this second movement in this long sentence that we started yesterday is this: In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches, the richness of God's grace. Let's get lost in this statement here for a moment. What we have all in common here in this room is that we all have have experienced and have been recipients of the grace of God. That's our common story here in this space. What we have in common is we have discovered the sheer wonder and mystery of a God who has moved toward us. And for us here in this room, it isn't merely, and for those that are online joining us today, this isn't merely a statement of belief. This isn't merely just theology or doctrine, but when we talk about the grace of God, we are talking about a personal experience. We have experienced the mercy, the grace of God extended to us. What we have in common here in this space is that, you know, in our darkness, in our darkest of times, in points of failure, in points of fragmentation, of, of points of, of, of frustration, of disappointment, of disaster in our lives, well, we have discovered that in our darkness, man, God has found us. He's drawn near. And as we start with this section, we just stop and, and, and not want these words to be normal. Just something that we just merely read without being able to stop and let it settle deep inside of us to be reminded that, that how we live is by the grace of God. That that merely isn't a statement of something that has happened in the past that God has saved us, but it's this recognition that daily I live by the grace of God. In him I have redemption. And again, that isn't a historical statement. That word redemption is the statement of saying, I have this ongoing redemption that's happening in my life. God is still at work in my life, redeeming, restoring, reconciling me. What we have in common here is the grace of God. We have discovered and we continue to discover that God meets us in our darkest places and our greatest moments of despair. And even when those places are because of our own choices, and we are there because it is of our own making, that if in those moments we were to be able to peer into the heavens and see the face of God, what we would see would not be a face of disgust, but what we would see is the radiant face of God's delight shining upon us. A face filled with love and compassion. What we have in common here in this room is that we all have been recipients of the grace of God. 
we have come to find that God is filled with unfailing love. He is a God of compassion and mercy. And we have discovered that God is doing a deep work of healing in our lives. This work of redemption, again, isn't merely an in the past, but it is a descriptor of the ongoing work of God's grace in our lives. And so what we're learning is to be a people that do not hide, but to be a people that understand that God calls out to us in our places of darkness. I don't know about you, but maybe there's other parents in this room where you just realize that one of the most important works that you're doing in your child's life is to constantly be teaching, is to constantly teach them to not hide. What I'm finding as a parent that it is, it is so difficult to do, but man, I am realizing that how important it is to teach my boys that when they do something that immediately fills them with shame or they realize that they've done something that they shouldn't be doing, that they don't go and hide from me. But for some reason, that is their constant response. Sneaking candy candy wrappers underneath their bed, <laughs> opening up their backpack and finding that they're bringing stuff to school that they were told you're not supposed to bring toys to school. You're not supposed to be bringing these candies to school. You're not supposed to be doing those things, but you're trying to hide them. And teaching my boys, no. You can make a mistake, but the decision after that don't hide. Don't hide. And what we're learning is that if life is defined by the grace of God, then we are to be a people that do not hide from him. But we come boldly before the throne of grace in our time of need. Because our lives are defined by redemption and forgiveness. What we find is that it is so important in these moments of life when we are filled with shame, when we are filled with, with, with doubt, when, and not that that's sin, but when we're filled in these places of just difficult moments of life, that what we find is that the grace of God sustains us. So don't hide, but come boldly before him. Because our common story in this space is the one who, it, there is one who is filled with the deepest compassion and unmatched healing power. And so we can bring our imperfect and vulnerable selves before him and discover that what he longs to show us is not condemnation, but, but grace. In him, we have redemption. Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. 
I love this statement from Eugene Peterson. He said said it this way. God does not deal with sin by ridding our lives of it as if it were a germ or mice in the attic. God does not deal with sin by amputation as if it were a gangrious leg leaving us crippled, holiness on a crutch. God deals with sin by forgiving us, and when he forgives us, there is more of us not less. That the work of God in our lives isn't merely to say, let me take that disastrous thing from you, but it's to say, let me not just save you from that, but let me save you toward something. I want you to have the fullness of life. I want you to know what it is to be in relationship with me. And again, so it isn't merely this place of saying, let me, oh, like, how dare you be so sinful and disgusting, but it's this place of saying, let me bring you to myself and show you the life that I want you to have. So we've been in this sermon series that we just started last week. We'll be in this week and then the next week as well, taking us into Holy uh, Week, Palm Sunday, and then into Easter. And what we talked about last week is that these I don't know, verses 3 to 14 um, is one sentence in the original Greek language that Paul writes. It is one sentence. It is one sentence of about over 200, 202 words. And, And the sentence, you'll notice has a lot of themes and repetition to it. And as as Paul writes this run-on sentence, he's doing so in in a way to get across to us, let me make sure that you understand and visit and revisit all of the things that God has done and is doing in your life. The sentence goes like this, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he has chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with with the pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given to us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reached their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out in everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, when you believed you were marked with him, marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possessions to the praise of his glory. And Paul writes this one sentence, kind of like when a kindergartner comes home and just starts talking and talking, wanting to tell a story, and you just go, my goodness. Like, just, just like the, the sheer volume and excitement that is in their voices. They're just trying to get across what they got to experience today. 
right? Like, like Paul, you can just see that, that the length of this sentence is told in a way to try to get across to us. Like, do you realize the depths of God's blessing and his love that he longs to show to us? And as we talked about last week, if you look at this sentence, you'll see that it's defined by three movements. The first movement is defined by the work of the Father. The second movement, the central movement, is defined by the work of the Son. And you'll see that third movement is, is defined by the work of the Holy Spirit. And the way that Paul writes to us is, is to show us that the, the focal points is that central movement. And so that's where we're at today. We're at this, this central point. We're at the mountaintop. We're at the peak of this sentence. So it, kind of, it moves in and then it moves back out. And today where we find ourselves is in this central movement. And within that central movement, you'll actually also see a, a, there's a central movement within a central movement. We're talking inception here, right? There's a movement inside of a movement. So if you go to the next slide, th what we're talking about today, this central movement will have this flow to it. We have redemption. And part of this redemption isn't that just God is taking isn't just taking sin away from us, but he's adding to us. He's giving to us. We have redemption. This movement of salvation isn't just forgiveness of sins, but now he's also lavishing on us all wisdom and insight. And is he, what is he giving us wisdom and insight to? He is giving us wisdom and insight to, the, to, to what he is longing to accomplish in the entire world. And that central movement is verse 9 and 10, that Jesus is bringing unity to all things in heaven and in earth. That is the mountaintop statement that Paul wants to make sure gets deep into our bones. And because Jesus is unifying all things, then he goes out from there, come back out, back down the mountain and saying, listen, we're a part of that unifying work. We're a part of that work of him bringing heaven and earth together. And then he ends this movement by saying, so that our lives would be for the praise of his glory. So we talked about redemption. Let's go to that next step up the mountain. Here's, here's the this, this sentence. Um, it says this, that at the end of verse um, seven heading into to verse eight, right? So in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. And Stephen Fowle said this about this next little section. He said, there is some ambiguity in the translation that he was looking at. It says wisdom and prudence, um, but it's the same section we're talking about. He said, there's some ambiguity about whether in all wisdom and prudence refers to God's wisdom or whether wisdom and understanding are some of the manifestations of grace that God has lavished on us. So would you imagine with this run-on sentence that there's going to be kind of some, like, ambiguity and, and cloudiness to what's being stated here, right? And, and there would have not have been any 
punctuation marks in this sentence that Paul wrote. So here it is, the Ephesian church gets this really run-on sentence, and, and the sentence says something along the lines of, according to the riches of God's grace, he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And as, and as, as people have looked at that sentence, they've tried to figure out, did God act with wisdom and understanding and made to known to us the mystery of his will, or is it that he gave us all wisdom and understanding so that we would know the mystery of his will? And as people have looked at this sentence, they've ended up in a place of saying, I think it's this way, and others saying, I think it's that way. And, and I, can I just confess, I love, I love that there's ambiguity. I love that we're stuck here in this place of saying, which is it, Paul? Are you trying to say that God has all wisdom and understanding, and, and in his wisdom and understanding, he's causing us to know the mystery of his will, or is it that you're giving us wisdom and understanding so that we would know the mystery of your will? And I, and I, I let, let me go on a quick tangent, if I, if I can. Um, I don't know about you, but, but the way that I imagine Scripture being written is that there are people that are sitting in, in their rooms, and the Holy Spirit is just communicating to them, and they're putting paper or pen to scroll and just jotting it down, right? Like just this incredible deposit that's happening, and they're writing it down, and, and then they, they wrap it up, and like after a day's worth of work, like boom, here's the Bible. Right, like that's always kind of how I've imagined it. Like if it's God's inspired word, then the Holy Spirit's speaking to humanity and they're writing it down and saying, here you go. And I came across a, a biblical scholar who said that, you know, it's actually very likely that what Paul was doing is that almost like a beautiful mind that he's writing things down and then crossing stuff out and saying, ooh, let me reword that and let me make sure that, uh, is that how I want to phrase that sentence? And let me, let me revisit that. And so it's likely that as Paul's crafting this letter that he's writing it out and then seeing what he's saying later on and saying, oh, let me adapt what that says. And all of that is happening by the empowering and inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That it's much more of this like involved process where God and humanity are like dancing together, putting, putting pen to scroll that which he wants to communicate to his people. And that, I don't know about for you, but for me, that kind of messed with me to kind of think about it that way. But, but for me, it just like, it seems to line up more with the, the character and nature of God and how he interacts with humanity and him saying, let, like, let me work with you on how we communicate this. Why go on all that tangent? Because I think that when Paul writes this amb ambiguous sentence, that he does it on purpose. And, and when he does it on purpose, it communicates to us something about how God interacts with humanity. Where, where, how, where he, his work begins and our acting begins are somehow like overlapped. And so this ambiguous space of like, is it God's wisdom and understanding that's happening in the world? Or is he giving, depositing in us wisdom and understanding? And that ambiguous space is maybe Paul's way to tell us 
It's both. It's both. And the reason that that's so important is that it, it, it communicates to us how God is working in our lives. The way that he's working in our lives is that that which he possesses and who he is, he's transforming our lives so that we also have that. So the wisdom and understanding of God is being formed in us. He's lavishing on us his wisdom and understanding. He's giving to us who he is. And what that communicates is, is that God is so much more personally, intimately involved in our lives than, than maybe we're, we're aware of. You know, there's this beautiful picture when you look through the gospel accounts where you see that Jesus is speaking to a crowd of people, and then after the crowd disperses, we're told then he goes and he hangs out with these one-on-one -on -one sessions with his 12 disciples. And in these little spaces that they have the ability to ask him questions, like, can you clarify for us what you meant when you said this? And, and it's just this incredible picture that's given to us of the relationship that we can have with God. Where we can have these personal one-on-one -on -one spaces with the wisdom and understanding of God where we can come before him with, with, our, with what we're trying to figure out about life and who he is, that we, have these, that we have these intimate spaces that we get to interact with him in. Just a few weeks ago, I was, I was at a, a, a pastor's conference up in L.A. County, and um, it was lunchtime. I went and grabbed the, the provided lunch, and I came, and I sat down at a table, and I was sitting kind of nearby some friends. I was sitting kind of like a loner there at the, the table. And, and I'm sitting there, there's an empty seat that's next to me. And as I'm sitting there, suddenly the keynote speaker is standing over my shoulder and he asks me, hey, can I sit down next to you? And this keynote speaker was just, his, has been a man that I've been reading um, his, his books, I've been learning from a distance on. He's kind of a, a personal hero, uh, you know, more recently in my life. And then all of a sudden, it's just like he's standing there and saying, hey, can we sit down and have lunch together? And I was just thinking, like, absolutely. And then I got to spend the next half an hour in a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the keynote speaker that everyone showed up to listen to. I mean, it was an incredible space to, to just be able to be there and just, and just learn in a one-on-one -on -one kind of a environment. Do you realize that the Holy Spirit is leading you into all truth? Do you realize that God longs to have this conversational type relationship with you. Where the invitation to you is that he might be able to lavish upon you all wisdom and understanding. That what God longs to do is to be just like personally with you. 
so that he might be constantly revealing to you his character and his nature. He longs to sit with you, to be near you, to be with you. Paul goes further than this, right? So he, he lavishes us with all wisdom and understanding. And check out where he goes, goes from here. He made known to us the mystery of his will. Let me just read the whole sentence, or it's not, a, it's the part of a sentence. Verse 9 and 10, it says this. It says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached the, their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The audacity of this statement is absolutely mind-blowing. Paul is writing to us, telling us, you have insight into the most critical piece of information that humanity has ever known. Like, I wish I can communicate it to you right now, just how, like, how profound this is. Yet Paul is writing to us and telling us, like, the most important piece of information ever is being given to you right here, right now. He's giving you wisdom and understanding so that you might know his will, what he is up to in the entire cosmos. Recently in the news, we've been told that, that our nation's leaders have been, have been taking confidential information into their homes and just like casually bringing them into their houses. I'm not making that statement to be some like kind of political commentary right now, but I'm just trying to get across to you, right? Like that they're taking this super critical, confidential, top secret information that no one else gets access to. Right? That that just isn't meant to be treated casually. Way beyond that. This, this, is, this is the apex of all communication, of any statement that has ever been given to humanity. This is the statement. Tim Mackey, the, the quote will come up onto the screen, but Tim Mackey talked about it this way in verses 9 and 10. In Ephesians 9 and 10, Paul views Jesus' story as the cosmic climax to the story of the universe. Again, I wish I could get it across to you. The, the, the weight of what Paul is saying here in this space. He says this is the central movement of all central movements. This is the focal point of it all. This is what God is up to in the entire world. This is what God is doing amongst humanity. This is the central point of information that, that, that humanity is to know. God is unifying earth and heaven together in Jesus. This is what it's all about. He made known to us 
the mystery of his will. We're not just merely freed from slavery, the slavery of sin. But we're given an invitation by God to join him in this climactic effort of unifying heaven and earth together. Jesus will be the one by, by which all things will find their restoration and meaning. Listen to this from Peter Thomas O'Brien. Christ is the one whom God chooses. Excuse me, I'll start over. Christ is the one in whom God chooses to sum up the cosmos. The one in whom he restores harmony to the universe. The stress is placed on the one in whom God's overarching purposes for the whole created order are included. A universe that is centered and reunited in Christ. The mystery which God has graciously made known refers to the summing up and bringing together the fragmented and alien, alienated elements, all things, in Christ as the focal point. Friends, what Paul is communicating to us is that in Jesus, all things will be made whole. And so whatever is fragmented, whatever is fractured, whatever is broken, whatever is unhealthy, whatever is demonic, whatever is evil, whatever is painful, whatever is cancerous, whatever is wrong in the world, heaven and earth will one day be mingled together in Jesus and everything will be made right and whole. Everything will find its summation and healing and purpose in Jesus. Everything will find its wholeness in Jesus. In him. In him. There is not a corner of the universe that will not find its meaning in Jesus. He is moving everything to wholeness. He is moving everything to healing. Heaven and earth are being unified in Jesus. Friends, what's, what's, what's just blanketed all over this run-on sentence is the language of temple. Let me explain that for a moment. Then when you look at the very first pages of Scripture, what you find is a story about the Garden of Eden, right? That, 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 that everything, that God speaks everything into existence, and he brings all the chaos and fragmented, fragmentation of, 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 of the universe into order by, by the word of his mouth. And, and, and when he does that, then he sets up this holy space called Eden. And he plants humanity there. And the picture of the Garden of Eden is the picture of temple. And the understanding of temple is the place where heaven and earth overlap. That is the space that heaven and earth meet. And as you know, the story goes is that, is that Adam and Eve, humanity, forfeit the ability to, to, to abide there. Now everything's fractured. Everything's broken. Pain and death have, have, have become the defining story of the world. 
And there amongst the, the world, God sees a people. He sees a man named Abraham, and he chooses him, and he tells Abraham, through you, like, I'm going to restore the temple. And he, and, he, and he chooses a people for himself. And he says, I'm, I'm going to live amongst you. I'm going to dwell with you. And the word that he uses is tabernacle. I'm going to tabernacle with you. And so when you're hanging out in the desert, the one thing that I want you to do, and I'm going to give you so much information and just language about what my tent is supposed to look like. And the reason that that's going to be so important, and the reason when you read through the, the first pages of the Old Testament and you're like, oh my gosh, why do I need to know how big a curtain is? Is because God's trying to communicate to everyone, like, this is where I'm going to live with you. And the language is, I'm going to, I want you to erect this tabernacle because that's the space where heaven and earth are going to overlap. And as the story progresses, Israel gets bigger and bigger as a people, and then suddenly they want a king, and they, they establish themselves as a nation, and as they do so, they decide that they want to build this, this temple. And when they decide to build this temple, God gives special instruction about what that temple is supposed to look like. And they're in that temple. There's meant to be a holy of holies. There's meant to be a space in which only one person, one time of year, can enter into to, to atone for the sins of Israel. And the understanding was that, that space was so holy, so set apart, because that was the space that heaven and earth overlapped. Then when you fast forward to Jesus, the, the statements that he's making, <laughs> repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that heaven is moving towards you, and that's all embodied in Jesus. And as Jesus is moving toward humanity, the picture is of, 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 of the overlapping of heaven and earth starting to take place. And when Jesus sees the Temple Mound, he makes this statement, this kind of ambiguous type of statement where he looks at them and he says, I tell you that, that this temple will be destroyed, but in three days, it'll be restored. And when he said that, he was talking about his own body. Because what he was communicating to humanity was that in him, heaven and earth were going to meet together. Now, here's where things go absolutely wild. Do you know what the authors of the New Testament call the church? The temple of the living God. And this is, this is that next kind of statement as we come off that mountaintop is we're part of that unifying work. That, that, that in Jesus, right, it is, it is the, the summary of all summaries, that in him, heaven and earth are being mingled together. And what he communicates to the church is this, when we are together, 
our relationship with one another, our connectivity with each other, our being unified together, that's the place, that's the place that heaven and earth are mingling together. Here, here, in this space, in this moment, this is the place that heaven and earth are overlapping. This is temple language. We're, we're the place that God is dwelling. You're invited in. You're, you're in the holy of holies. You are the place that the presence of God dwells. He, merely, he isn't just merely forgiving us of our sins, but this word redemption, this work of salvation, he's leading us to a place of healing and wholeness and restoration with him that we can barely begin to understand. We're connected to Jesus, and in him is every good thing that we need. And so our lives, when Paul writes this, so that you, it's a y'all statement, so that y'all would be for the praise of his glory. And, and our lives are meant to be the beautiful expression of God's grace being seen in the world. Our lives are meant to be this witness and this declaration to the world around us of what it looks like when God dwells with humanity. Have, have you ever been in a space where you just stopped and asked yourself the question, how in the world did I get here? Just because the Oscars happened this, this past uh, weekend, I know I've told the story before, but man, one day I was, I was invited to, to work um, post-Oscars by cleaning up all the flowers that were, were placed on the red carpet. And I showed up as the Oscars were wrapping up and I went on the wrong elevator and I ended up walking the red carpet. <laughs> T-shirt and jeans, right? Like a $20 outfit standing next to people wearing a $20,000 dress. Like, it was just hanging out there like, how did I end up here? <laughs> Do you realize where you're at? This is where you live. Access, intimate relationship with the goodness of God. We join a story that God has been writing for millennia upon millennia. He's been expressing his goodness to the rest of the world through imperfect but being redeemed people. And I believe that our response is to pray things like this. God, let your will be done on this patch of earth. May I see you do a work of redemption, of healing, of wholeness. 
in me and amongst my people. May we be a people that really believe that you want to lead us into the fullness of life. So that our, our lives might be for the praise of your glory. So that our lives would be a declaration, a witness, an expression to the world around us. May our lives be a worship song. May our lives be the, for the praise of his glory. May our lives be an expression of the grace of God. What we all have in common in this room is that we have been recipients of God's grace. And he's leading us into the fullness of life. So we pray, Lord, may you start revival and renewal here. Church, would you stand with me? Let me pray to you, pray over you what, what the Apostle Paul prays as he finishes his, one, his, his run-on sentence. After the run-on sentence, he then says this, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Excuse me. Keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Amen? Amen. Let's sing this short little song together. Praise God from Blessings flow, praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Sing them one more time. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost.